Number 12, Ephesians, third quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Welcome, Penol family. We resume our study of the book of Ephesians, and the title of our lesson today is The Call to Stand. Our moderator is Dr. Daniel Duda from the Trans-European Division, and Karen will lead us in the opening prayer. Dear gracious and loving Father God, Our hearts are filled with praise and gratitude for all the love that you have showered on us during the past week. We thank you for the countless ways in which we've tasted and seen and heard and felt your love, as well as the countless times you showed your love to us and we didn't even notice. Please help us to be more aware of all your care for us and help us to be more aware of those around us who need to feel your love and care through us. And we're here together now because we want to learn more about your loving character as we study your word and share our ideas and stories. So bless this space of learning and discovery as we join hands across the globe. Bless each person in this conversation, each person listening online, and place a special blessing on our friend Daniel as he works with your Holy Spirit to unlatch new windows and doors in our minds. May our hearts be open to new perspectives and possibilities, and may our thoughts be stretched as we explore new and exciting horizons. Ah, Today, each of us are facing our own spiritual challenges, and we thank you that whatever we're experiencing, we know that we are never alone. You live in us, and we live in you, and you have equipped us with all kinds of power tools to strengthen us and protect us your love for us, our faith in you, your peace in our hearts, the truth and power of your word, and the assurance that you are keeping us all safe. Help us to understand what your unfathomable love and these incredible tools mean for our lives today. And Father God, we love you more than our human words can ever express. We long to meet you face to face and show our love and gratitude to you in each of our own unique, creative, and wonderful ways. But until then, we know you understand the silent language of our hearts, our longings and desires, our thoughts and feelings we don't have words for yet. And we give them all to you in love and praise and gratitude. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Karen, and blessings to you there in Slovenia. So we are in lesson 12 for Ephesians. Now, Ephesians has 155 verses. So if you have 14 Sabbaths, how do you divide them? It would more or less neatly be 11 verses per Sabbath. But this lesson, we have 11 verses, but we'll have the same 11 verses next lesson, number 13. 73 verses from Ephesians are also found in Colossians. And actually 85% of what is in Ephesians is duplicated elsewhere in other New Testament letters of Paul. And one of the reasons for that is that Ephesians is a circular letter. So he wrote it to all the believers there in the valley of Lycos, the river. And so he asked the believers also to read it in the surrounding churches. And most probably the reason why it's called Ephesians is that the copy that was preserved has to the believers in Ephesus. But obviously those in Hierapolis, etc., they just entered their name when they read it publicly. If you look under number one, so there is a statement of purpose. In these 11 verses, Paul prays for enhanced vision for believers so that they will be able to see the full reality of the great controversy and to draw hope from what it reveals to them. And it's an allusion to the text from 2 Kings 6, 
when Elisha prays that his servant would see the spiritual reality on the mountains around. And so when the Lord opened his eyes, he saw that there are more with them than those opposing them. And so he saw a different reality. So hopefully that will happen to us as well. So let me start with a quotation from a famous one of the most popular New Testament theologians nowadays, when you go to the American Academy of Religion or Society of Biblical Literature meetings, every time Nicholas Thomas Wright has a presentation, so he will be in the largest ballroom and there is a standing room only. So if you don't come early, you will not have a seat to listen to him. In the book, The Day the Revolution Began, he says, I have often reflected on the fact that if the reformers had focused on Ephesians rather than Romans or Galatians, the entire history of Western Europe would have been different. So the fate of Protestantism would have taken a different route or route, as you say in America. What do you think about that statement? Is there something different about Ephesians that gives a completely different perspective? Sean? Yeah, it's less theologically formulaic and more relationally oriented in terms of how best to get along with each other and how to treat each other. Whereas the former books, Romans and Galatians, seem to be all attempting to clarify theologically some misunderstandings that were embedded in that context, which was quite a combination of theologically influenced from a Jewish perspective, as well as uh, quite paganized. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Henry? It seems to me that from the traditional perspective of Christianity, we like to see the Bible as a book of prescriptive actions, rules and things that need to be done. And obviously, Romans and Galatians seem to give that impression, that it tells you exactly what to do and how to do it within the context of law. So definitely for any right to say that means the intention of traditional Christianity has been uh, to focus on following the rule of law. And definitely, if we will have seen that the Bible is not necessarily that, then we shouldn't have needed to have Ephesians as a counterpart. But definitely, that's the perspective that I see he is having. In. Although all those three books may have the same point, we have the tendency to see more law in the other ones that the practicality of Ephesians shows. Okay, so we are certainly enriched because we have Ephesians as part of the biblical canon. Iris? It's interesting that Romans and Galatians spoke to Luther in such a special way. Because what was the issue that Luther had? This profound sense of unworthiness and this fear of God. And so in that sense, these books spoke to him, how can I achieve a merciful God? Whereas in the book of Ephesians, the angle to which it speaks to us is almost, okay, if all of this is true, how then should we live? If God is so profoundly merciful, then what kind of a response does that require in our lives? So that's a very, very different focus. Achieving a merciful God or embracing that or the response to the world, if that is so, what does that mean for our relationships? What does that mean for the way we live in this world? Yes, thank you. And he gives a perspective from the 
universe that God is putting things together and through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be revealed not only on this planet, but universe-wide. So this lesson, we are going to look at the context of these verses. We are not going to discuss the armor of God. That's part of the next lesson. And we will hopefully see how this perspective of the universe-wide controversy helps us to concentrate more on the question of my guilt, my debt, and can I please God and can my problem be resolved? But there is a bigger problem that needs to be resolved in the universe. Good. Sooner or later, every believer will discover that Christian life is not a playground, but a battleground, and that we face all an enemy that is much stronger than we are. Now, you need to know that when Paul is writing Ephesians, he's chained to a Roman soldier. So he is looking at someone who is there in his armor. And of course, his readers are well aware with the Roman soldiers because they could see them on the street. They could see them elsewhere in the Roman Empire. They know the equipment that they are using. And so Paul is going to use one of his favorite metaphors or illustrations of Christian life. What can we learn from comparing Christian life to a life of a soldier? Onward, onward, Christian soldiers marching like to a war. How does it help? And how can the metaphor be abused? Lou? Well, it's certainly a battle going on in this world, the great controversy. And it's a battle within my own heart every day as to whether I'm going to function from my connection with God and the Holy Spirit or from a selfish standpoint that can seem fairly legitimate sometimes. But I believe God wants us to have courage and strength knowing he has won this battle. And that we don't have to be afraid, but we have to be sturdy in him. He will make us sturdy. Okay, so he has won the battle. And so there is an implication for us. And under number six, we'll speak about this fact that there's a big difference whether we are fighting for victory or we are fighting from victory that was already achieved. Let's go to Anthony. You kind of hedged at this just for a second, but I guess if you're saying that this is a battle, Christianity is a battleground. Question B, what does victory look like? Yes. So do you have any suggestion? <laughs> I typically think that the, the battle is probably more referenced in each one of our hearts, each one of our lives. And the victory is when we're able to put Christ first and ourselves afterward. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. We oftentimes race to the end and think that that means we get to go to heaven. But I'm not sure that's what we'd say is victory. So that would be a classical Christianity, very medieval perspective, that yes. the important thing is to leave the imprisonment of this world. And this planet is not our home. We are wishing for a better place. So the sooner we can leave it, the better to go to our heavenly home, which, of course, it's a Greek perspective. It's not a biblical model, because in the biblical model, the restoration of creation is what is God's plan for humanity. The New Testament speaks about fighting three things. It's the world, it's the flesh, and it's the devil. And we'll take a different strategy with each one. And ultimately, you and I cannot fight the devil. He's a lion who is much stronger than we are. The only thing the New Testament advises us is not to get into the cage with him and to resist him. Let's go to Michael. Each of us is an individual, and each of us has our own individual struggles, problems, difficulties. 
joys, happiness, and so forth. And so, in my view, it's not just the collective group of people we call Christians, or even in this group here at Pine Knoll, but how does it affect me individually? What do I do to try to obey the dictates of Almighty God, which are really rather simple, although difficult to apply? For example, love one another, love your enemies. That's a really difficult thing to do when somebody is assaulting you, either physically or financially, whatever, and say, you know, this is tough, but I really love this guy. You know, it is constantly a struggle for, I think, each and every one of us. Okay, so this also helps us to see there is a struggle, and it's not always a playground. It's not easy to walk in a rose garden under moonlight. So there is a struggle. Henry? It's important to understand that Paul is using a metaphor that is easily to be understood by his audience at that time. These people are under the Roman influence. They had uh, soldiers all over the place. So it was an easy, at least from the perspective that I see it, it was an easy way to illustrate the message that he wanted to give. Because everybody knew what a soldier was. Everybody knew what the Roman Empire was doing. So to me, that's how useful it was the metaphor. Because it was probably for us, we needed to be using something different, a different metaphor, Facebook, TikTok, or whatever, that will be speaking to our reality. Now, the challenge will be, or the misuse of the metaphor will be to try to apply it literally to us today, just because there is a sign in there of force, of authority, because army, a soldier, today will represent oppression, will represent use, submission of others by force. So that will be probably the risk of applying that metaphor today literally to us. Okay, thank you. Rita? Henry got there a bit for me. <laughs> more or less what I was going to say, that in Paul's day, as Henry said, they would have been used to having Roman soldiers on the streets. They're not fighting, but they're maintaining an order of a society different from which is being imposed upon him. And I think the danger of us using the image of a soldier certainly in America and in Europe, because we're not experiencing war, but our picture of a soldier is of one who is actually fighting in a war for a cause, is not what Paul was using. I think he was using it to show that they were under subjection to some sort of power and using that as a metaphor for the subjection of the power of Satan. Okay, thank you. Larry? I see this as Paul trying to address the universal answer. What does it mean to live a Christian life? Following something that Rita just pointed out about the fact that the Christian life is to bring order to society. And the Roman soldier, as she points out, was there to bring order to the society. And I think Paul is trying to play on that idea that the Christian living the life and using these tools brings order to his life, her life, and therefore to the community around them. And he doesn't really talk about going out and becoming a warrior, but more about living the life and using the tools. Yep. Thank you, Terry. At the beginning, you asked, I think, something about 
why the metaphor of the soldier, like onward Christian soldiers moving, keep moving forward. Well, I thought if we stop moving, then we don't go anywhere. And many of us, all of us have at some point been in a place that is very discouraging, that is very difficult. And if we give up at that point, then there is no opportunity to get to somewhere better and somewhere that is more fulfilling. But you know, even if we're in a good place, we could get to a better place. And then I also wondered if part of the victory is learning and then knowing within ourselves that God is actually trustworthy. And you cannot be told that you need to experience that. Thank you, Livius. Wars are won by a team of people, by a community working together. And the putting on armor is a soldier. It's down to the soldier, the individual. And the war metaphor, when you're in the trenches, you really rely on your buddy. Your buddy's in front of you, your buddy's behind you. So there's this community aspect where we need each other to survive and to move forward. And in Ephesians here, Christ is the general, and it's very Christ-centered. And there's a lot of talk about unity and being unified in Christ. And I wonder if Europe would have been different if they read Ephesians and were unified and had a built community. The community was strong, worked together, looked for each other's back. So I think the war metaphor is an interesting metaphor in that we all need each other, and it's a community that moves forward to win this battle. Good. Thank you. Michael? This is more of a question than it is a comment. And I wondered about Paul was a Roman citizen, and that gave him a special status, whether it was with the Roman army or, or soldiers or anybody else. And like in Thessalonica, they wanted to kill him, but they wait a minute, the guy's a Roman citizen. We can't do that. And so his citizenship as a Roman, how did that affect his relations with like the Roman soldiers and the other aspects of Roman law? So the Roman citizens are due legal process. They cannot be just condemned without a proper judicial process. And that's what Paul is going to claim there in Philippi, that we are Roman citizens. You cannot just punish us, mistreat us without the due judicial process. All right, throughout the centuries regarding this metaphor, there have been two attitudes or regarding the spiritual warfare. On one hand, if we are in spiritual warfare, everything is an enemy and you see enemy behind every bush. And so people speak about the demon of laziness, demon of flu, and there is a demon behind everything. And of course, then the other extreme is that people say all this talk about the devil and the horns and the pitchfork and hooves. Can you believe this nonsense? This is such a primitive way of portraying reality. So you completely ignore it. So you either become preoccupied with it or you ignore it. Unhealthy interest in everything demonic or ignoring it, it's not good for you in the long run. It's going to cause some harm. Michael already mentioned that to love your enemies, to treat nicely and wish well to those who are not nice to you, it's a struggle. Different Christians struggle with different things. Hopefully, it's not a surprise to you that there is a struggle in Christianity. There is some popular version that if you do all that God requires, life is going to be nice and God is somehow going to sweep the pathway for you. But you know that children of millionaires who have everything to provide for their children usually don't turn out as the best, most unselfish 
happiest children or people. So why is this idea that we are soldiers fighting an important idea? Do you need to know about the great controversy going on? Isn't that enough to understand that you are actually in a battle yourself and that's all you need to know? How does the knowledge of the great controversy help you in your spiritual life? Neil? To defeat your enemy, you have to know your enemy. Okay, so... You have to know what your enemy is about. You have to know what his background is. You have to know what his desires are. And we are in a constant conflict between what Jesus said about God and what Satan has said about God. And we meet it every day of the week, all kinds of ways. And it's a constant battle to stay on course. Okay, so Paul says, I am not as one who is punching in the air. So if you know the enemy, the probability that you will be victorious in your fight is greater. But we are going to talk about this, that although Paul says, I have fought the good fight of faith, he tells Timothy to fight the fight of faith. Here in Ephesians 6, where he speaks about the armor of God, the key word is going to be not fight, but to stand. And we will come to that shortly. But how is Christian life different? Why do you need to know about great controversy? In a military battles, frontline soldiers don't know very much. They have their duties and they don't know much about the strategy, about the bigger picture. That's the job of generals, not the soldiers. So why do you and I need to know about the great controversy? Iris? We live in a polarized world. And I think especially in the last couple of years, I think the discourse has really deteriorated. It's often in the public discourse, but also I think the same danger is also with people that we personally disagree with, that we become enemies just because we disagree on a certain topic. The perspective I think that Ephesians offers is that our enemy are not people, are not our spouses, our children, our neighbor who seemingly has a different political conviction. Our enemy is Satan. And I think that perspective helps me when I find myself at odds with other people, that the people that I disagree with are people that God loves, that God wants to use for his kingdom and has invited into his kingdom too. And so I think it really provides a much larger perspective that has practice implications in that sense that I'm seeking to win. And I think that's also what the life and legacy of Graham Maxwell stands for. The way he treated people that attacked him, that thought differently from him with graciousness. He had that clear that the enemy are not the people that oppose him, but the enemy is the one who wants to distort the truth about God. So our enemy are not the people and our job is not to fight. That's right. So let's go to Anthony. I think this is a crucial question to understand why do we need to know about the Great Controversy. I think if we put this in context, if we were suddenly dropped into the midst of World War II with no context, none of what was happening would make sense to us there either. So the knowledge of Great Controversy gives us the context to understand why things are happening in the world and what is going on. And I think that's very important. Even when you're a, just a soldier on the front line, if you at least have context of what's going on with the fight, 
you will be a better soldier than if they just said, go do this. And you have no understanding or context to know what the fight is about. So in the army, there's a reason why the less the soldier knows, the better. He can concentrate on the task at hand. He's not supposed to think about it. He's not supposed to come up with uh, innovative ideas. He's supposed to execute the orders. And one of the reasons why the less the individual soldiers know is that if they are taken into captivity, there is a danger that the strategy will be made known to the enemy. And that's why the generals deal with strategy, not the soldiers. However, because our enemies are not people and our job is not to fight, the more you understand the strategy, the better you see the bigger picture, the more effective you are going to be as a soldier of Jesus. So while the army is based on you do the orders, somebody else is doing the thinking, this is where the metaphor breaks down when it comes to the great controversy. Livius? Well, I was going to maybe continue Anthony's thought and that because we are soldiers, like we are in the great controversy, we are in it. We are part of the controversy. There's a controversy that happens in us on the same level. We are in a battle between, constant battle between two different natures. And the plan of attack is not secret, right? The cross completely revealed the victory and the nature of the one who won that victory. And so it helps to know, to have that understanding, because we ourselves are fighting the same battle. Yes, thank you. So we are not ignorant of the strategy of the enemy, and that helps us to be aware of the way he is trying to deceive us and to catch us unaware. Henry? I think you pointed that very well, very clear. The reason why it is important to know about the great controversy is not to say, this is the way that I need to grab my arm and shoot the enemy. The reason is to know why the great controversy began. That's the reason, the most important reason why there is a great controversy. And the great controversy is not because there was no one in authority. It was because the freedom that was given, the opportunity to dissent, and the opportunity to reason and to exchange ideas and to come up to an understanding. I believe that the importance of knowing about the great controversy is that origin, that with having a God that is all-powerful, almighty, and even allows descendment and doesn't blank out and eliminate the enemy, tells me a lot about the nature of this conflict. It is not by any ways similar to any of the conflicts that we see, the wars that we see in, in this earth, because our wars are not born because of the same reason. So we just need to look around at the current wars that we are seeing and has nothing to do with freedom on the opposite. So that is the important element to know the why. And then it will come clear to us that is not using force in the way that this conflict is resolved. Yes. And verse 10, this will be the conclusion. Finally, brothers and sisters, Adelphoi includes both. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength, power of his might. Be strong in the strength of his might. Finally, make sure you give the good blow to the head, to the heart. Or what. No, finally, you need to be strong because if you got the wrong strategy, then even the whole metaphor is going to be abused as it was 
throughout the Crusades and the Middle Ages and up till today. Barbara? For me, the understanding of the great controversy helps me understand my own problem, you know, how damaged I am and how I need to rely on Christ. We all know this battle is in our head a lot between the nature that we have and the nature that Christ is giving us. And so to understand the great controversy, to understand what was done by Satan and what God has done for us is just incredible when I'm fighting this battle in my own head. Okay, thank you, Lou. Another, besides war, another analogy that came to my mind was like a football team, a sports team. The coach is the one who really studies the opposing team and gives the instructions to the players. And I think that knowing the history and knowing our loving God, who is our great advocate, our great coach, our great helper, and he is our strength, that makes all the difference in my everyday life when I really, really cling to him and ask for the Holy Spirit's indwelling. My life is so different from times when I maybe get too busy or caught up or whatever, and I don't do that. But keeping my eye on him and the goal that he has won this battle, and that he will give me all the strength that I need for every day in my life. That's such a blessing. Yep. Thank you. So what are we supposed to do according to verse 10 and 11? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Okay, so you can see he gives an exhortation, be strong in the Lord, and there is a consequence, a call, put on the whole armor of God, and then there is a purpose to be able to stand against the schemes of the evil one. And then in verse 12 later will come the rationale, the battle is against the powerful spiritual forces of evil in the air. So... What is the significance when Paul says, be strong in the strength of the might? And you can hear that we use might, another word, because otherwise it would not sound logical to us. But that's what Paul says. The exhortation is, be strong in the strength of the Lord and his strength. So the lesson is, our job is not to fight. Okay. What is our job? To be strong. Henry? To believe, to have faith that he has it, he has control of that. This is what he is requesting from us. Just trust in him. And he already achieved victory. We are not fighting for victory. Yes. And as you know from all individual sports, it's all in the mind. So if you are not sure you can win, it's almost sure you are going to lose. Now, don't need to tell you as a pastor how many Christian believers... I had to accompany in the last moments of life when they struggle thinking, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Is God going to accept me? Because somehow in the mindset of us Christians is that your job is to fight and that victory is the reward for fighting well or achieving certain standard. So if you have been good enough, then you will get the reward. But Paul says, no, Christ has already achieved victory. We are not fighting for a victory. We are fighting from his victory. And our job is to be strong in his strength, not in mine. Because you and I don't have any significant strength for an enemy that is much more powerful, much more intelligent, much more insidious than you and I can tackle. Iris? 
Yeah, I think this clarity about who fights and who doesn't, who rests in the one who is strong, the battle about how God sees us, how he is committed to us versus the distortion that he doesn't care, that he has walked off, that he's doing all these infliction on us. I think that's really where the battle is. And so I think we are called to hold on to what we know to be true about God. And as we hold on to that reality, which very often seems to not be true when it's dark, when we are going through tribulation, it seems like God is absent. It seems like he is silent. It seems like he is not on our side. And that's why the We need to hold on to the reality of the gospel, that God is for us, that he has won the victory, that he will never leave or forsake us. And out of that truth, out of that spiritual truth, comes the experience of victory also, I think, on a personal level. And I think that's what he encourages us to hold on to. Yes. Thank you, Iris. And notice in chapter 4, Verses 20 to 24, he said to put on the gospel clothing. And now he says you need to put on the whole armor of God or the full armor of God. So what are you supposed to put on? And that's where it helps you to understand what is a metaphor and why he uses it. Rita? This verse 10 and 11, it reminds me of the story of David and Goliath. Because Saul wanted David to put on a whole suit of armor. He tried it and he said, this is no good. I can't fight in this. I've got all that I need. And all that he needed was his trust in God and his understanding of his enemy. He knew that he could deal with it. And I think what Paul is saying here is a similar thing. What he goes on to describe is what God gives us to protect us and to stand in so that we can be prepared for the onslaught. Because if you're not standing and facing it, you will get knocked over by it. And David stood and assessed his enemy and destroyed it with what God had given him. So if you are asleep, you are going to be surprised. If you are not standing in his power, then you are going to be knocked down or knocked out. Thank you, Rita. Michael? Well, at the time that Paul wrote this, Christianity wasn't a major religion. It wasn't even considered a minor religion. It was a brand new religious movement. And Paul was at risk of losing his life. He did lose his life under Emperor Nero. So the question I have for myself today is, what is the onslaught that I face? And most of the time, it's my own individual proclivities. Whether I get up and went to church today with my wife, although I'd say, well, I'd rather sleep in today. That is my own human temptation and with all kinds of different things. And it's a struggle in a way. Well, in fact, it is a struggle. The other thing is that one of the realities of life is that some of us are going to die quietly in our bed with members of our family surrounding us and wishing us well. And some of us are going to die very violent deaths. And we don't get to know what that's going to be. And that's one of the aspects of life that tells me, try to lead a decent life every day because you never know when it's going to come to an end. 
Yes, of course, some Christians from a certain provenience or a certain perspective of spiritual warfare, Michael would say that it's the devil who is preventing you from going to church, whether it's in the form of the snow that's falling outside or <laughs> the rain or whatever, while it's just my laziness and my flesh that just wants to be comfortable. So, it helps you to see that when he asked people to put on the gospel clothing before, and now he asked them to put on the full armor of God, that probably the primary purpose of that armor is not to fight. So here's an important question. What is the purpose of this? How many times does Paul use the key word in Ephesians 6, 11 to 14? So, do you know what is the key word? Why do we need to put on the whole armor of God? Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Okay, so what's the purpose of putting on the arm? So that we can stand. Now, here's the question for you. How many times does Paul use the word stand in the next three verses, 11 to 14? How many times does Paul use the word stand in verses 11 to 4. Yes, Livius, you get the prize four times. So that you are able to stand against the wiles of evil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, verse 13, so that you may be able to withstand, same Greek word, stand on the evil day. And so that when you prevail against everything, you stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore. I mean, he cannot make it clear. Your job is not to fight. Your job is to stand. So, Bobby Joe. I was just deeply moved by that thought that if we're thinking that we have to win the battle, it's a very different paradigm than when we realize that the battle is won and we're to stand and basically live out that reality of a one victory. It's just a completely different mindset. And it reminds me a lot of the experience between David and Goliath. Here's this young child going to battle. Everyone else that was experienced, that understood warfare, was terrified of what it meant to go down into that valley and face that giant because they realized that whoever did that was actually going to be responsible for losing the battle for Israel and basically enslaving the entire nation to the Philistines. But he didn't come to that experience with that mindset. He came to it with the belief that God had already won, had already defeated the Philistines. And he didn't understand why there wasn't a courageous stand from that mindset. Why would we allow the Goliath to mock the living God? He was a God of great might and power. And so with courage, he went down there and picked up some pebbles and threw them. And the story goes on from there of God realizing a victory for his people. But I think it just completely changes the perspective when we realize that God has won and we're able to stand next to him, stand in the shadow of a great God who has won the victory already. It just gives you, gives me courage. Yes, and it's interesting how his brothers put him down. 
Yes. Instead of supporting him and encourage him, they say, oh, we know why you are here. Who do you think you are? You think you can fight? So they are scared. And I think it's also interesting. Paul talks about putting on the armor. It's a flip there with David and King Saul. King Saul wanted him to put on armor in order to go into that battle. So what did it mean when David chose not to put on Saul's armor, but went basically as a naked boy just with some rocks? So what does the armor mean? And he realizes that he cannot fight in Saul's armor. Yes. And basically it means that God is equipping you for this battle. God has equipped you. Don't worry. Henry. It is so countercultural. We have been told again and again, over and over, that you have to fight, that you have to do your best, that you have to push. And a traditional Christianity has been, you can, you have to do it, you have to win, you have to overcome. And we need to understand that we are broken, that there is nothing in us, that anyway, the battle is not ours. God said that before to the armies in the Old Testament. This is not your battle. This is mine. And this is exactly why the great controversy model is important because when we look backwards to the origin of that, this is not ours. We just got in the middle and it is not our role to fight. It is our role to protect, get protection under his feathers. And that will help us to withstand the attack of the enemy. Yes. Yes, the enemy is the roaring lion, but he's already defeated. He's already caged. Now, every now and a while, you can read a story how someone jumped over the fence or the marsh. And if you crawl into the cage, then don't be surprised that the lion is going to attack you. But if you run away from him, as Peter says, then you are fully equipped to stand and to withstand this attack. It's not beyond your capacity. All right, and so let's go to verse 12. Who is the enemy? What are we fighting? For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So who are these rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces? If you go back to chapter 1, Verse 21, Ephesians 1, 21. Far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So what is he talking about? Verse 20. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So you need to see yourself that you have been raised with Christ from the dead. You have been dead in trespasses and your sins. Now you are seated with him on the right hand in heavenly places. And verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So whatever the enemy, you can't even name the enemy or imagine enemy. You need to see yourself that with Christ you are sitting above them, that they are already defeated forces. And you don't need to feel defeated. And chapter 3 and verse 10, this is where Ephesians gives the perspective that you don't get in Romans or Galatians. And that's why medieval reading of these epistles was, but what about my guilt? What about my sin? But Ephesians 3.10 gives you what perspective? It's not about my sin. 
So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Yes. So the news of these boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. So what was now revealed to us through God who created all things so that through the church, through you and me, the wisdom of God in its rich variety because we are all different. So through this new community, God's might will be known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And then you go to Ephesians 6.12 and says, all these forces are already defeated forces. Whatever they are, or however you name them, you need to see yourself. You can withstand against them. You have been fully equipped. Just avail yourself of what is available. So basically, when Paul mentions these rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces, he says, don't underestimate your enemy. In any battle, it's a bad strategy to underestimate the forces. You may think you will win in three days, and then one year later, you are still fighting. That's not a good idea to underestimate your enemy. But if you start from the position of victory, if you see yourself from the position of the death and resurrection of Christ, that you are in Messiah, in a relationship with the victorious king, then you fight from victory, not for victory. Michael? This letter of Paul was not written to 21st century Christians. It was written to 1st century followers of Christ that lived in the Mediterranean. Uh, whether it was Ephesus or other cities that would receive copies of this letter. But the important thing, at least to me, is how do I utilize what Paul has said in order to improve my relationship with God and improve my relationship with other people, including my wife, my family members. Okay. Now, if our battle is against, according to chapter 6, verse 12, not against blood and flesh, that means humans, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, darkness, spiritual forces of evil. What is the implication for us if human beings are not the enemy that we are supposed to fight? If you have been on a board of a local church, I'm sure you remember the discussions about the color of the carpet, about the musical instruments to use to praise the Lord appropriately so that he can identify with our singing and consume it with joy or be disgusted? How is that manifested in the fights on a local or global church level if our enemies are not people, flesh and blood? Paul says, when I received my call, I did not counsel with flesh and blood. Now, some people might say because obviously either he was not married or his wife left him when he became a Christian so that he didn't counsel with his wife, but it means just with humanity. Bobby Joe. I think that the only way we can actually love an enemy is to see that he's not an enemy. When we get into conflict or somebody offends or somebody intentionally attacks, it really hurts deeply. But when we understand that behind the curtain stands the real enemy and we're just being used as pawns in his chess game to destroy God. I think we can have the courage to forgive, to see beyond, and to take it from a personal attack, to neutralize those emotions, to put them aside and say, there's something much bigger going on here. There's something much deeper going on here. That person doesn't know how they're being used to impact me or discourage me. And 
in doing so, you can love that person. And I think that's the only way we can love that person. Yeah, thank you. But why is this important? That our job is not to fight, our job is to stand, and our fight is not against human beings. Iris. So I think when we are just carelessly going about our business and don't see the significance of our being tied to Christ, I think we're not vigilant enough. We don't prioritize our spiritual life, our time with God. To me, that is a big reason. Being fully aware of my human brokenness, being fully aware that there is an enemy who constantly wants to get me to misrepresent God, that makes me very aware of my vulnerability. The fact that I want to represent God in this world in such a way that people have a better understanding about him, that they are drawn to him, brings significance to the way I live. And so if that is not a strength that I carry in me, I can only receive it from God. And that happens in our personal time with the Lord. So the personal relationship with Christ at the forefront when we understand this truth. Thank you. Let's go to Ashley, Ashley Fuller. So I think one reason it's important to understand this, I think that was your question, is so we don't a, take the metaphor of the battle yet too literally, because I think that's done in the past a few times, and obviously it didn't go so well. <laughs> so I don't think that in the vast majority of situations, that's the appropriate like literal way to like handle conflict. And so, yeah, that's not how God wants us to represent him. And so often the deeper wisdom and often counterintuitive thing is to stand, listen, maybe do the thing that the other person isn't expecting, which isn't to react or try to take revenge or use force, because that often is, I think, the tendency, which I think comes from a misunderstanding of like human behavior, of how our mind works, of making assumptions about people, and we don't completely understand. But I do think the frustration comes more in just not knowing how to maybe handle situations or how to get your intentions across or yeah, what to actually do. But I think just standing and maybe the whole concept like mindfulness comes to play here when we're talking about standing. So really stepping back, setting our maybe initial reactions or emotions aside and making a wiser decision based on like our long-term goals rather than just how can we get this person to agree with us in this moment. And if they don't agree, that means they are enemies of God and Jesus is on our side and he does not identify with them. Yeah, way too many fights are just to score points so that we can feel better about ourselves, to deal with our insecurity, insignificance, or inferiority. And we are not fighting the battle of the Lord, we are just fighting our own battle. Well said. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. Anthony? You asked why our job is to stand. I recall the verse that says something along the lines of, devil was a deceiver from the beginning. And if we also recall in the great controversy, we are aware that he was able to deceive a third of the angels. So to a certain degree, we are involved in a fight where we have to stand and be counted on one side or the other. And so the fight isn't to go out and to do something, but it's to be counted on one side or the other and to be not afraid to let people know which side and why. Okay, thank you, Lisa. We've emphasized that Paul uses the word stand four times here, but I would like to argue that 
he doesn't say just stand and not do anything because it seems like he says here, we have to have a certain kind of armor. And it's not the armor that they're using to fight the battle in Ukraine, but rather, and he talks about righteousness, truth, peace, all of these things. And so I, I want to advocate that, yes, okay, let's stand. But should we not be developing some of these traits, some of these characteristics that will help us stand better in the day of tribulation? And how does one do that? To me, it would be easier to go out and get a gun if I wanted to really fight, rather than to develop righteousness and peace, a peaceful character. All these other things, I think, are so much more difficult. Yeah, definitely. And you need to put on that armor. So if you don't get out of bed, it's certainly not going to happen. (laughs) So there is something we need to do. But definitely what we need to do is not fighting. Michael? Yeah, Satan, the devil and his minions literally prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of every human being he possibly can entice. And Anthony mentioned this, that he's a great liar. And probably the greatest lie he's ever told is that he doesn't exist. You don't have to worry. There is no such thing as the devil. Believe me, there is such a thing, such a being. Yeah, it's the reality of the spiritual world, yes. Jane? I would like to read battle experience that happened this week. So when we say that we are fighting against powers and principalities, of course, I want to view it as that it can also be real physical battle with the enemy. And this is what happened this week. Briefly, we are in a group of ladies that we pray together. So a friend of ours back in my home country, she's been battling against real demonic powers in her school. And she was confronted by one of the students who is a devil worshiper. So we just gathered ourselves and we kept praying. And for sure, this student was delivered. But what happened on Tuesday? is that although this child was delivered but could not stay in school and went home, they said the last word was the battle is not over. So when my friend goes home that evening, she sent us pictures of a red cobra, a real snake. So we like kept uh, praying and the Lord helped her. And the first thing was to detect I mean, like she was not physically attacked by that snake and that she called out for help. And it was a place where they really don't expect snakes at all. And it was burned in fire. And I just want to say this for sure. We are in a real physical battle and with the enemy. And we just need to stay focused in prayer. Physically, we may not do anything like in this case. I remember just calling my friend because she was so scared. How was she going to sleep in the same house after the red cobra had just been burned? But we claimed the promises of God. We prayed and she slept in that house without fear of another attack. So this is for me, it's a real encounter and real standing in prayer. And I thank God it found us in prayer and fasting. We were just in that season. and I just want to add this to today's discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. So you can see that in different parts of the world, in different cultures, Satan is going to use different methods to discourage people. And back to verse 10. And you, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters, 
stand strong in God's strength, in God's power. John? If we make this a personal fight, then there's a huge risk of us misrepresenting God. Like David, the fighting man, wasn't allowed to represent God by building the temple. If we become emotionally involved, we rob people of their freedom. We don't exercise God's law of liberty and love, and we rob them of their freedom to choose by trying to coerce them. So it's best to stand back, trust God, and allow God to reveal himself to others through you. Thank you. And the last one, so how would we apply this in today's world? What are the powers of darkness? What are the authorities? Which authority do you listen to? So when you feel that you can't get anything right, when you feel that you are too sinful, that you can't be saved, do you think Christ is putting that thought into your mind? Where does that come from? What are the powers of darkness, spiritual forces of evil in today's world? How do we change this into small coins? so that people can understand your job is to stand in his strength, not listen to these voices, to these narratives, to these stories. They are not coming from Christ. They are coming from the enemy. Ashley? Yeah, I think everyone has their own struggles and they can look very different from person to person. Unfortunately, some of the struggles are more stigmatized than others. And so it's maybe harder to talk about, but Our brains don't always make it easy for us to live in this modern world. And unfortunately, the way things are set up in some of our societies kind of make it really hard to succeed. Like when it comes to if you're trying to like eat healthier or struggle with substances or anything, sometimes it's you feel like you're supposed to do it alone. Although as humans, we're very communal. (laughs) So we're supposed to get help and reach out. And so, but yeah, everyone struggles with something, I think. And it's a lot easier to deal with some of these if we're willing to talk about them, which again, helps if we do a little bit of a better job at not being so judgmental when it comes to how we receive people and realizing that the core struggle behind this is often kind of the same, even if in practice, it looks different. Yeah, well said. And so by changing the chemistry of your brain, you change the way you feel. And we will pick up on this, how we support one another in the next lesson when we talk about the armor of God. Yes, it will be very important. Thank you, Ashley. Well said. Sean? Yeah, I created a list that I won't try to explain all of my reasoning. You might be able to interpret some of the reasoning as to what are some expressions of the powers of darkness and spiritual forces of evil. The misuse of historical eschatology, church dogmatism, us versus them thinking, Mm -hmm. imbalances with respect to human relationships, and authoritative domination over others, bibliolatry. These are a few things that I listed as some expressions of the powers of darkness. They are not simply distant or unusual expressions of the devil trying to pick us with a pitchfork in some extreme ways. They are oftentimes expressed within our community and within our leadership and within our families. And so those were a few things on the list that I wanted to at least bring out and not try to expand or expound on any one of them. Yeah, well said. Well said. And so suddenly you see how Ephesians provides a perspective that is not only relevant for our times, but helpful in seeing that people are not the enemies. 
It's these attitudes, and they don't come from Christ. They come from the spiritual forces of darkness or the powers of darkness, forces of evil. Larry, can you say the comment about the devil is in the detail? You know, the joke in many cases when I was growing up is the devil's in the details. And in my experience, that's included the implication that God is not there. He's only in the big picture, and he leaves us alone to fight with the devil. I think Paul in Ephesians is making it extremely clear that God in the form of Christ, is right there with us in the details, enabling us to live our lives as God would like to have us do with all of the tools and things that he has provided. And I think that's a great comfort to modern-day Christians. You are fully equipped, you are fully dressed, fully covered, whatever the metaphor, with the full armor of God. God is there on your side, providing the strength and protecting you from these attacks. And your job is to stand on his side. Iris, and we will pray. A few years ago, we conducted a study with the Journal of Christian Nursing and asked nurses about how they respond to a patient's request of prayer. We actually asked them to write down a prayer and did something I had never done. It never occurred to me before. We used qualitative methods to analyze these prayers. And then a very interesting structure emerged from these data. And when you work in higher education, you go to conferences. And I boldly proposed to present this prayer study at a professional research conference. And while there, the evening before my talk, I experienced such an attack, such profound discouragement. I cannot even describe it. I've never experienced that before, a professional talk in, in just the same way. And I met someone, a colleague that I had never met before, who happened to sit with me over lunch. Turns out she's a Christian, and I shared with her my distress. And she immediately said, you know, Ephesians 6, you're under attack. That is the enemy. And she prayed with me. And I cannot describe, this is, of course, a very personal way, but I experienced God reassuring me through a nurse researcher from another university that I never knew, but someone who knew the Lord, who could relate to what was happening and who supported me in prayer. And I was able to give my talk, all right. And so it has many ways in which these attacks show up. <laughs> This was just one that came to my mind. But I think the significance of these experiences is every time God delivers us from such an attack, we have come to know him better. And it gives us courage for the future. And you become aware that in his might you can withstand is the language of Ephesians 6. So in different contexts, different parts of the world, different cultures, there will be different manifestations. So as Jane indicated, there will be places where red cobra is going to scare the daylight out of you and the places where people could not care less. And there are places where presenting the efficacy of prayer in the context of helping profession is going to create animosity and aggression. And there are places where people say, of course, that's part of the reality and the environment in which we live. And so there are places where it takes courage, but God has equipped us. And Paul in Ephesians says, is going to pull all these things together. 
that based on what Christ has accomplished in the cosmos, in the larger universe, those who have been dead in trespasses are now alive. The division that divided us versus them is taken care of. It's not valid and significant anymore. When Christ was resurrected, we have received the power for new resurrected life. And we need to see ourselves as seated together with him in the heavenly places. Yes, there are still forces there in those heavenly places, evil forces that are active. They are trying to deceive you. They are trying to discourage you, knock you down, knock you out. But God has done everything to equip you and you can stand in the power of his might because he supplies all that we need. And together as a community, we can help one another in our struggles and to encourage one another and support one another because together we are stronger and can achieve what none of us can achieve individually. Let's pray. Lord, you know how often times we are knocked down, yet we don't need to be knocked out. We are discouraged, yet we don't need to give up. And thank you that you provide through Jesus Christ all that we need for every day of our lives to support brothers and sisters and people around us who don't know you yet, and to be that victorious community that is as mighty, as beautiful, and as terrible as a victorious army marching forward. And thank you that ultimately you will achieve all that without violence, abuse of power, just the way the Spirit works, so that one day the knowledge of your character will cover the world as the waters cover the sea. And we thank you for that and for being able to play a small part in all this. In Jesus' name. Amen.